Uh, we're going to have it read. We're going we're gonna to hear it um, spoken and preached. And before we do so, uh, let's pray first. Father, we come this morning and we need to hear your word for it is life to us. And so we ask then that your spirit would be with us in opening our hearts, opening our ears to understanding what, it, what you have to say to us here. Uh, we are going to look at the words of Jesus and we pray that we would not just see Jesus on these words, but that we would actually hear the words of Jesus to us, that, um, that we would hear the, the whole Jesus, everything about him given to us in this time. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, you can either find on, in your, your worship guide, you'll find the, the text uh, from the passage that we're looking at this morning, which is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 19. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn to there also, but it is in your, your worship guide that you can find. They're again, they're at, at, at the tables. Um, we are kind of in a little bit of a mini-series right now called Come to the Table, where we're looking at a, just a, a few passages that, that talk about the theme of food in the Bible and are, are, um, use that, the imagery of food, uh, use it as, as, as a theme, uh, whatever it is there. And if you didn't know, this is always leading us back to the Lord's Supper too, which is where we see food very much uh, tangibly for us uh, every week. And so today we're actually going to be uh, looking at a passage of uh, breakfast with Jesus in a way. Uh, and so this is in John chapter 21, which is at the end of the Gospel of John. It's, it's uh, very much near, near the end, so it's talked very much about the life and ministry of Jesus. And he has, at this point, uh, been crucified. He's been raised, and he's appeared to his disciples now two times. And this is going to be the third time that he appears to him. And so that gives a little bit of context for where we are in this, in this passage. But let me go ahead and read for us. Pay careful attention because this is the word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he, re and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And, now they, were, and they were, now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Amen. A typical and unfortunate part of being sinners who relate and live with one another is having breaches in our relationships. It doesn't matter who you are. Inevitably, you will find yourself to be at odds with someone that you know and maybe even love. And that's where those, those three words that we speak are so life-giving. Those words, I forgive you. And they're particularly sweet when you are the prime cause for the breach. But sometimes that's the easy part, saying those words. The hard part is actually living out that you are forgiven and that you are reconciled to that person. Sometimes there's that period of awkwardness immediately after when you feel like you're on probation, either self-imposed or not, but you're trying to go above and beyond to prove that you really are sorry, even when you've given them their forgiveness. It's like we still need to add something before we feel restored to one another. And there are moments like this when we, uh, when we misapply this same mindset to God. Can you recall a time when you felt like that before? Maybe you feel like it this morning. We open up relational breaches between us and God by our disregard for his good commands to us. We rebel against the designs that he has for our lives. But then the beauty of the gospel is that God himself has taken all the necessary steps then to reconcile us back to him by the life and work of, G of, of his own son, Jesus. And that's the part of our liturgy in the mornings that we had before. And the, the confession and the renewal, the assurance, when God's word reminds us of how we've ripped apart our relationship with him. But then after we confess and we seek his mercy, he gives us that sweet proclamation, I forgive you. And those are sweet words. But the question is, do you believe them? Even when we still receive God's affirmation of his mercy to us in Jesus, it's easy for us to think that we are still on probation or that we need to do something to prove that maybe this time, this time now, things will be different. Like getting into God's good graces is something that takes time to be repaid. 
even when that promise of reconciliation is instantaneous. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. He doesn't allow us to think like that. And he shows us here by his interaction with Peter as he invites him over for breakfast. And they sit around a fire sharing a meal. In this moment here, Jesus reaches out to Peter by himself taking the initiative for reconciliation. He doesn't hold him at arm's length. He doesn't ask how he will prove himself or even what he'll do better next time. He takes Peter, a broken disciple who has denied his very Lord, and he restores him back into fellowship and service. And like Peter then, your love and service to Jesus and to others flows out from experiencing his gracious reconciliation. And so we're going to focus on this restoration, this reconciliation here, and we're going to look at four aspects of it that we see. And the first is that restoration is by Jesus' invitation. Restoration is by Jesus' invitation. The disciples, led by Peter here, jumping in the water to go out and swim to him. The disciples land on the beach where Jesus has just called them. They step out of the boat, and what do they see? There's a charcoal fire with a simple breakfast of fish and bread laid out. Now, verse 9 specifically says a charcoal fire. There are a lot of times in the Bible where these details are given, and they don't seem very important. Is this one of those? Why specifically a charcoal fire? There's one other place in the whole Bible where a charcoal fire specifically is mentioned, and it's also in the Gospel of John. It's just a couple chapters before this in chapter 18, verse 18. And the charcoal fire that we see there is the fire outside of where Jesus was being tried by the religious leaders to be unjustly crucified. It is the fire where Jesus' enemies were warming themselves that night. And who else do we see in that moment around that fire, around that charcoal fire, but Peter? That fire is where, that charcoal fire is where the scene of his three denials of Jesus would take place there, warming himself with Jesus' enemies. Where out of fear and self-preservation, he would leave his master and he would instead identify himself with those who are responsible for condemning him. But now here's another charcoal fire. Here's the charcoal fire that Jesus is sitting at. And when Peter denied Jesus three times and he wept bitterly because he was devastated about what he did, now here's Jesus inviting him around his own fire. And he sets out a meal for him. This is going to be a meal of reconciliation. This is a moment where Peter's wounds are going to be reopened. But for Jesus then to, re, to apply the healing balm of reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness. Now think about Peter and how awkward everything must have been before this. The Gospels say that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, he looked him in the, or Jesus looked Peter in the face and then he goes and runs off and he weeps bitterly knowing what he's just done. And at this point here now, this is the third, it says the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples. What do you think was going through Peter's mind all those times before when he saw Jesus? Now certainly joy and wonder, but do you think also a little bit of fear? 
a little bit of embarrassment and shame and awkwardness, maybe even hypocrisy because Jesus knew what he did after all. You have to imagine that look that Jesus gave him when the rooster crowed was haunting his memory. But even here though now, you see this excitement that Peter has as he he jumps out of the boat to see Jesus, but you still have to imagine he's feeling this, this unresolved tension, maybe even thinking that I need to prove myself to Jesus. But in all of this here, in this big scene, there's a few things that are familiar. Important thing, they had just spent the whole night fishing without getting a single catch. And here's Jesus then on the shore telling them to put their net on the other side. And they do so and they bring in an enormous load of fish. And this is just like then when Jesus initially called Peter and his friends to be his first disciples. And it's as if he's reminding him again of that call that he, that he first put on him to be a disciple. And now here also is Jesus with bread and fish on the shore of, of Galilee. And this reminds Peter, and it reminds us too, if we're familiar with, with the New Testament, it reminds Peter and us about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with bread and fish in the same place in John chapter 6. And the context of all of that there, when Jesus calls himself afterwards, himself saying the bread of life, Jesus said in John 6, 37, in that moment when he fed the 5,000 in a similar place, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, what's happening here is Jesus is reminding Peter over breakfast of his love for him even in his failure as a disciple as he had in that moment. And that he doesn't need to fear being cast away. This is what Peter needs in his despair for denying the Lord. Yes, Peter, you've sinned grievously. Yes, Peter, you're a broken person. You failed in the call that I put upon you in this very place. But yes, Peter, don't fear that I will cast you away and that I'll be done with you. And now here's the crux of the moment. As they sit hunched over the bread and the fish around the fire, Jesus looks at Peter. Peter, do you love me more than these, these other disciples? Not just do you love me, but do you love me more than these other disciples too? He's the only one who denied Jesus. And in this crushing moment, Peter just says, yes, Lord, you know. And not once Not twice, but three times they go through this. It's an incredibly humbling time for Peter. But Jesus questioning him three times and then pulling the confession from his lips there is for each of the denials around the fire that night. And he isn't doing this to cause Peter pain. He's not doing it to provoke him. He's doing this to give him the opportunity to express his love for them. Because each time Jesus responds by giving him a task. I do know. So take your love for me then and care for my flock. Love me by loving my sheep. Jesus is actually recommissioning Peter to go out as a disciple again. There are moments when we, all of us, I think, can identify with Peter. When we are crushed by the weight of what we're done. And we feel an estranged or a a strained relationship with God. Perhaps this morning was awkward for you coming to church because you know how you've let him down during the week. Or that when we've been humbled 
because we realize just what it is that we've done. Either the same sinful habits over and over that we can't kick or just how deep that wrong really goes. Maybe you haven't darkened the door of a church for some time because you have a strained past or you feel unworthy to come. Jesus calls you too. He calls to all of us here. He invites you to come around his fire to his place of reconciliation because he has done everything that is necessary for you to be brought back into a proper relationship. It's why he went to the cross in the first place to remove all that causes our embarrassment and our shame before God. As Jesus was tried and crucified, he died then to take away the record of Peter's denial that had just happened. Do you believe that he does that for you too? Jesus doesn't hold grudges. Jesus isn't vindictive. His purpose was in coming to reconcile. So that when he says you are forgiven, then believe that. It can be hard at times to know personally and existentially down deep when you when you know that you feel like a hypocrite or when you repeatedly turn back again to the same sins over and over. But just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it isn't true. Don't come with awkwardness like you feel that you need to do something to prove your love, but instead sit around his fire with him and hear the promises that he speaks to you. The second aspect about, rec- about Peter's reconciliation here, rest- restoration empowers us to serve. Restoration empowers us to serve. Now, when we read about Peter in the the gospel accounts prior to this moment, he's a loose cannon. He's reckless. He's brash. He's forthcoming and pretty arrogant. And he's zealous to this degree that I think most of us would find pretty obnoxious. Telling Jesus that he will never fall away. He will never deny him. That he would be willing to even die for him. The fact that he says that right before his three denials. Even at one point, he has the audacity to take Jesus aside and tell him, maybe you should reconsider this whole cross business. It's to the point that if most of us had met him, we might have some doubts that this guy was going to be the apostle later that Jesus would actually use for his cause. But now look at him though. It adds this extra impact to Jesus' question, do you love me more than these? when he, other than Judas, is the only one who's defected. Peter's amazingly and very uncharacteristically quiet in this moment because he's deeply humbled. Maybe I'm not so great as I thought. Maybe I'm not so strong. Maybe I'm not so willing. So that all he can muster is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But I think this marks a turning point in Peter's life. Because the Peter that we read about in the rest of the New Testament isn't quite like the one that we've seen before. This is the Peter who in his first epistle would write the following. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as well as a fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Or he writes this also, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, the disciple who is brash and arrogant, the disciple who is fearful, would then become the the apostle who would write these words. And so what is it that changed in him? What changed him was this moment of humiliation and of reconciliation. Because Peter now knows grace personally. And his knowing that grace personally allows him to pastor well. 
In fact, I think that he's only able to really truly to carry out Jesus' commands to care for the flock by this moment of experiencing his humbling, which is followed then by reconciling grace. It's restoration and knowing the grace of Jesus that makes us fit for his service. He calls and he uses broken people for his cause. For one thing, because there are no perfect people. But more importantly, it's those who are broken and those who are humble that are able to be employed then for his cause in ways that point him, point to him as being the Christ, not to themselves. Knowing grace doesn't harden us. Knowing grace ought to instead soften us. Grace allows us to love because we bear the indelible mark of Jesus' love for us. Grace changes how we act among others. Grace changes how we speak to them. Grace makes us more gentle as Jesus is and continues to be gentle with us in our worst moments. When I know reconciliation and mercy, I will look at others differently. Particularly those who are broken or those who are bogged down or those who are lost. Because I know myself and I know that it's only by Jesus extending himself to me that I have anything. When we are broken and we come face to face with the reality of our Savior amid our neediness, it allows us then to enter into the lives of others. Your past failures then don't need to be an impediment for you to be used in Jesus' kingdom. In fact, perhaps we're better equipped then to pull the focus from ourselves and to instead cast our hopes upon Jesus. The third part about restoration that we see here. Restoration is a continuing work. Restoration is a continuing work. Verse 18, we have this very curious bit of information that Jesus gives to Peter. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What's this mean? It's kind of a strange, strange phrase. Well, Jesus is revealing Peter's fate, which is going to be martyrdom. In a younger life, he was free, but later he will be carried away then to die, or he will be carried away to die by the authorities because of his ministry. And verse 19 alludes to this here. Uh, It says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so also does verse 18 when it says, stretch out your hands. That was a common phrase that was used in reference to crucifixion where where the one being put on the cross was told to stretch out your hands across the bar. And tradition, whether we want to believe it or not here, tradition, again, don't, don't put too much stock into it, but the tradition part here says that Jesus, or that Peter would be crucified. And not only would he be crucified, but He didn't want to be crucified in the same way that his Lord would. He actually said, crucify me upside down instead. Again, whether or not that's true or not isn't the point. The idea though here is that Peter won't turn turn tail and he's not going to hide like he did before at Jesus' crucifixion. But then Jesus says, follow me. And Peter does. Peter follows. But why? Why? The natural response is to seriously question whether or not he's to be trusted, right? He's failed once before. Isn't he going to deny Jesus again? Is this really the person that, that Jesus wants to, to, uh, to, be, to be used? Isn't Peter 
worth, is Peter possibly worth the liability to be taking back? Can Peter really be useful? And you might even imagine Peter has this in the back of his mind, as maybe some of us also might think for ourselves as well. But consider, though, those words of Jesus to him. And boil down to this, you're going to die for me. You're going to be crucified for my cause. And Peter may have once been a coward, but Jesus' words, though, now give him confidence as he goes forward because he's going to do what seems to be unimaginable for someone like him. He's going to go to martyrdom. Not because of his own strength or ability. He will be able to follow Jesus, and this time he'll be able to follow Jesus all the way to his own crucifixion because of what Jesus promises to do with him. Jesus gives Peter these words then of confidence that he isn't always going to be the same sort of person. He's not always going to be this cowardly man. There's going to be work that goes on inside of him. It's the Spirit of God that would be at work in Peter to transform and remake this coward. And friends, if you are in Jesus, if you trust in Christ, that same Spirit is also at work in you, brothers and sisters. If he can do this in Peter He can do this also in you. You are slowly being remade and transformed into the image of of Christ. See, the gospel isn't about self-help. The gospel isn't about bettering yourself or taking steps to being a better or a more confident person. It's about being changed and transformed from the very inside out. Being changed is very different than changing yourself. And there is a very real change then for you to experience in Jesus because he is the source of our life and our righteousness before God. But he's also the source of our growth as well. It's why he gives believers his spirit to bring about and effect real change in them so that you are no longer in bondage to your old self, to your old sin nature. You're not defined by weaknesses, but you are a new creation But you are also a construction zone. It takes time to grow. Sometimes there are frustrations because you don't feel like you're growing in the ways that you ought or to to the, the, the degrees. Or sometimes it feels like you're regressing. But the thing is, you're still a construction zone. You're still a work zone. And God still promises to progress you along. And if you look carefully, you might even find little bits of of progress in places in your life that you didn't expect. But like so many of Peter's words, this must have caught caught him, or sorry, so much of Jesus' words, this must have caught Peter off guard. But later though, through his life, there must have been in some strange way, a comfort to him. Because a former coward, Peter's identity wasn't in denying Jesus. And we too often remind ourselves of our own former failures, and we use those to define ourselves. But this wasn't what Peter's identity was in. It's not what in what he had done. It was in what Jesus called him and what he was making him into. And so that your identity isn't defined by your own particular inclinations or your weaknesses or the ways that you have fallen in the past. Your identity is in what God, by Jesus's work, calls you. And it's in what God, by the Spirit, is making you. And so do you find yourself focusing instead on your failures and taking your identity in that? In who you think you are now because that's what you see? Well, Jesus here, according to his word, says don't. Don't look at what, look instead what, at what 
you will be, what, who God says you are, and what he's doing in you to see who you really are actually right now. And so Jesus calls Peter once again. He says, follow me. Despite how he sinned egregiously before the Lord previously, he still says, follow me. Because Jesus provides reconciliation and Peter is deeply humbled. See, discipleship, being a disciple, following after Jesus entails failure. You and I, as we seek to follow Jesus and as we seek to be disciples, will inevitably fail. That's just the reality of it. In fact, younger folks here, get used to it. You're going to fail. But don't use it as an excuse. But just know the reality of it here. You're going to be an imperfect disciple. The question, though, isn't whether or not you're going to fail. The question is, what are you going to do after you fail? Are you going to grow despondent and fearful? Or are you instead going to look again to the cross? Because being a disciple isn't about being a strong and a brave Christian. It's not about living a life of triumph and bravery. It's recognizing that we are imperfect disciples and that we have lives riddled with failure. Because discipleship is a life of repentance. When Jesus tells us to follow him, we look at where he went. He went to the cross then for you and I. And we repent of our shortcomings and we revel instead in the identity that he in turn gives us by his perfect life. We are a people then who are defined by grace, both as we are reconciled to God and as we advance then to further live out by the Spirit, our new identity in Jesus. And so our fourth point about restoration that we have here is that restoration comes through a meal. Restoration comes through a meal. This life-changing moment here that, that changed the trajectory of Peter's life from failure to grace happened over a simple breakfast that was cooked over a fire. It was through a meal that Jesus restored Peter back to himself where he would be used once again. Meals are where we share fellowship with one another, aren't they? We invite people to sit around our tables, to get to know them, to hear them, to know them, for our, to be known in turn. The table is a place of giving and of hospitality. And it's no different with Jesus. Isn't it profound that he would use a meal to invite Peter back to himself into a renewed fellowship there? You see, it wasn't by accident. It shows that Jesus had a real intent to do so. And he continues to show that restorative intent with us by a meal. He sets out a supper for us for failures, for sinners, for the humbled and the broken. And he invites ordinary people like you and I, not the mighty, not the good, so that we will once again know his reconciliation. And so as we come to his table that's set out for us here, he doesn't set out bread and fish. He sets out something better. He sets out bread and wine, the very emblems of his body and blood given for the lost. And he invites us to come to his table where he will feed us by what we need the most. His very self, which was crucified on that cross to reconcile us back into fellowship with God. And so we come and eat we receive. We don't do anything but receive. And we receive Jesus. So each week then as we come to the table and we eat the meal that he sets out for us, he reminds us that we again are restored back into proper fellowship with him. We don't need to fear him. 
We don't need to feel awkward or ashamed as we come to the table. At this time here too, he renews us for service yet again because we understand anew his mercy for us and we understand our total reliance upon him and then that enables us to go and act with a similar mercy towards others. When we come around the table and we see the meal that he has prepared for us, he continues to be at work for us. We experience his mercy in real tangible ways that, that, um, so that we can be changed. The bread and the cup, they are signs of his promise to see us through into the end when we enter into glory. And he promises to always be our God and all, always to be at work in us until that day. We pick up the bread and we're reminded of his faithfulness as we feel it. We smell and we taste the cup and we're reminded that his blood has sealed us as his people right now, but also has sealed us for who we will be someday. Friends, Jesus has set out his table for you. He invites you to come and to eat from the meal that he has put before us so that you too can be restored and reconciled and renewed and empowered according to his promise. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are gracious to us. We thank you for not just the meal that you gave to Peter to reconcile him back to yourself, but to the meal that you give to us also. And that, that the fact that that's who you are, that you love to reconcile the lost, the humbled, the broken, the failures, the miserable, whatever it is, the shamed back to you and that you have done so by giving yourself to us. Lord, let us remember that. Let us be changed by your mercy and your grace just as Peter was. Let us take the promise then that you give to us even in tangible forms as we come to your table and let that change us. Father, we come repentant, we come humbled, and we thank you so much. Amen.